Father, we want to praise your great name. We realize that one of the ways we do that is to listen to you and to let your word grow deep within us. And we pray that this will indeed be what happens as we continue in our worship of you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. There are a lot of opinions out there about the church. Some of them are true, some are false. Uh, Some are disparaging, some are encouraging. And every one of us has an image in our minds about the church. What the church should be, what, what the church is about, why the church exists. And it's not uncommon for local churches to step back periodically and ask ourselves, what does our church look like? What, what is it that, that makes the church where we are the church? About three or four years ago, uh, this is exactly what we did. Uh, the, the elders and, and the pastors got together and we created a, a small group of people to begin working on What is is it that we are as a church? What's our purpose? What's our vision? And what came out of that eventually was, uh, through a series of over probably eight, nine months, uh, a recommendation we made to to the church as a whole. And we tinkered with that and we talked about it. And eventually we came out with the bookmark that's in your bulletin today. And we've distributed these before, but... I wanted to, to give them out to you again today, and hopefully you'll take that with you and keep that in front of you. And if you look at the, the side that has the multicolors on it, you see sort of the, the, the big arching picture that in a sense is every church. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom. But we also want to talk about what it means specifically to be this church. And on the back side of that, we were specifically thinking about our vision. Not so much what we are, but what God wants us to be. And really the overriding idea of that, really the main thing that was driving that, was we wanted to create a vision for what we would be as a church that could only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. We didn't want to put down things that if we just thought about it long enough, if we just put together the right ideas and principles, we could do it. We wanted this to be something that could only be accomplished, that we could only be if the Holy Spirit got a hold of us and made it happen. And that in our willingness to let the Spirit work, God could take us places that we could never possibly end up on our own. And so as you look through those bullet points... Quite honestly, you look at them and you think, for us to accomplish that is crazy. For us to actually be that is impossible without the Holy Spirit working in us. And that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. We also did not want this to become something that we spent time with, worked on, and then put it into a a drawer somewhere, and no one ever thought about it again. And that's why we decided on the bookmark, because it's something that we can keep with us. And it's also why we, throughout each of the years, have come back and looked at some elements of 
of this statement. And last, last spring at our vision meeting, uh, we divided up into 12 groups. And each group took one of those bullet points and talked about them. Where we see this at work in our church and, and some ways where, we, where it's missing. And how, what are some ideas of things that we might be able to incorporate to help us move toward what the Spirit has for us. It was very enlightening. And I've read through those statements and the elders have read through them. We've talked about them. It was very helpful. And then last fall, the elders and the pastors got together for an evening. And we, and we took this statement and we, had, we asked ourselves a question. What do we need to work on now? Out of those 12 bullet points, what are the things that we think are most imperative for us to talk about and to think about right now? And we divided up into two groups. There were probably about 18 or 20 of us there. And we divided into two groups, and each group asked themselves that question. And we went through these bullets, and each group independently began to think about what would we pull out, as we would say, the most three or four most important things that we as a church ought to be thinking about right now. They're all important, but what can we focus on right now? Because you can't really focus on 12 things at once. And when we came back together, both groups had chosen the exact same four things. I'm thinking that might be something God is saying to us. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at those four bullet points. Just putting in front of us something about what God may be calling us to think about and to be and to be open to, to be the church in this place. And some, way, some things that are important for us to think about and to process and to pray about and, and how God can, can move in us individually and corporately in these ways. And today we want to talk about the bullet point of embracing and loving all people. It's interesting. I think it's appropriate that we talk about that bullet point because we're in the season of Epiphany right now. And Epiphany, you know, means manifestation, revelation. And the season of Epiphany focuses on some of the early events of Jesus' life. It, it focuses on his baptism, where he reveals to people, to the world for the first time, uh, his mission and as he begins his ministry. It focuses on his first miracle, that God is, is concerned and interested and involved in the, in the most daily, normal things of, lives, of our lives, that Christ's first miracle will be at a wedding. But the very first event that Epiphany focus on, focuses on is the coming of the Magi into the Nativity story. And the coming of the Magi has to be one of the most surprising things that a Jew would read as he's reading through the second chapter of Matthew and the story of Jesus' birth. This is the Messiah. This is the chosen one of God who has come into the world. And in the midst of the story, right at the beginning of the story, you have included pagan astrologers who are the heroes of the story. Now, these are people who are not Jews, and these are people who, whose life work is devoted to something that God has said Jews don't do. And yet, here they are in the middle of the story. And the other part of that is that as they come to Jerusalem, and they ask, where is he used to be born king of the Jews? And Herod gets the, the Jewish scribes and, and the people who know that kind of thing together, and they tell him, well, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And the stars appeared and they don't seem to care. 
And you have this contrast between two groups of people. And we're reminded in the coming of the Magi that Jesus comes not just for a select group of people, but for all people. The coming of Christ is about him coming into the world for everyone. And that's one of the reasons why, as the church, we are called to embrace and love all people. Now, the moment we start talking about embracing and loving all people, welcoming all people, one of the first things that comes to our mind is the, the idea, the mindset, we have this caution that, well, does that mean that it doesn't matter what people do? That we're just throwing out all of our biblical standards because we just, we just want to welcome people. Not at all. Embracing and loving all people does not mean we now no longer have any biblical standards. That the things that the scripture teaches us about what's right and wrong just simply disappear. Those are important for us. They always are. The truth of God's word is always significant to what it means to be the church. And embracing and and loving all people does not eliminate that or even minimize that. We have our our belief system and it's important that we maintain truth and that we understand the call that God makes upon people's lives. What we're simply saying is in the midst of maintaining truth, we can still love people. In the midst of maintaining truth, we can embrace people. Because the reality is, no one really cares about our truth until they believe we care about them. And in the church, we embrace and love each other, even when we disagree, even when we have differences of opinion. Because that's what the kingdom does, that's what we do in the kingdom. Sometimes in, in maintaining our spirit of truth, people may misunderstand us. But I've also come to realize that most of the time, people aren't misunderstanding us. They're getting the message that we're trying to send. Because as we try to maintain truth, too often we think that maintaining truth and loving people are mutually exclusive. And they're not. They're not at all. See, as the evangelical church, Jesus knows that our struggle is a lot more often about about keeping people out than letting people in. Our struggle is being too close to people, not being too open to people. And that's part of our human nature. I mean, we're good at building boundaries all the time. We like to protect what we believe and what we think. And and we're experts at that. We're experts at closing people out. We're experts at judging people. Which is why the kingdom is so counterintuitive to us and to our world. Because Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is about embracing and loving all people. Even as you maintain the tension of keeping the truth. We love people. We care for people. See, our problem is 
We think the kingdom is about being right. And Jesus tells us the kingdom is about being loving. We think the kingdom is about winning. About making sure that people understand our opinion. About making sure that people agree with our opinion. And Jesus keeps telling us the kingdom is about love. Because the only way people are going to listen to our opinion, the only way people are going to take heed to the truths of, of, of who Christ is, is if they first believe they are loved. I'm convinced that there are very, very few people who reject Christ on what they would say as intellectual grounds really do that because of intellectual arguments. When you begin to uncover the layers of, of, of their disagreements... I have found that most of the time, what's underneath that is some kind of emotional response where a Christian has hurt them or the church has snubbed them or they have felt rejected, unloved by people who follow Christ. And it's just made it easy to believe that the the principles of Christ in the church are wrong. Something in us seems to default toward judgment rather than toward love. And it's contrary to the kingdom. Earlier this fall, there was an article in the New York Times about uh, an event that the the Southern Poverty Law Center had had instituted. It's the 11th year they've done it called Mix It Up at Lunch Day. I don't know if any of you heard of that. This was the first I had heard about it. But it's designed as a program for, to, as an, a program to, to minimize and hopefully eliminate bullying in schools. And so what they, what they do on this day is they bring school children and at lunchtime, they, they, they sit peop, school children in places and with people that they would normally never interact with. And it might be because of socioeconomic differences, it might be racial differences, it, it might be all kinds of, whatever the differences may be, They try to to sit students together for lunch on this one day with people that they would never interact with otherwise. And in in the process of that, maybe get to know them a little bit because it's a lot harder to bully someone that you have a relationship with. In the midst of that, there was an an evangelical parachurch group that sent an email out to all of their followers that said... On this day, I think it was October 30th, uh, this program is really just a veiled threat to, to make homosexual behavior um, and homosexual lifestyle uh, common mainstream in the public schools. So on this day, boycott it and keep your children home. And this organization says that their, their goal is to fight unga- the rising ungodliness in our nation. Which, as I interpret that, it means godliness is believing the way they believe, agreeing with them, and ungodliness is not. Now, I don't know. I can't tell you whether this is some kind of veiled... If they're right, if there is some, something underneath the surface going on in this thing, I don't know that. But what bothered me as I read this article is that there was a natural rush to judgment. Rather than thinking, maybe this is something that we can work with. This is, these are people trying to bring folks, kids together to stop something that we all want to stop. 
And when it all boiled down, the people who looked loving was not this evangelical group. And too often, that's the image that we portray as the church. And yet when we read the Gospels, where do we find Jesus eating with people nobody else wants to eat with? Hanging out with outcasts and in the words of of the people around them, sinners. We continually find Jesus welcoming and loving people that he shouldn't welcome and love. And yet Jesus is able to maintain that tension of welcoming folks and truth. Embracing people and truth. And it's the call of the church. You come to the story of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, you have this teacher in the law comes to Jesus. And he asks two questions. The first question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And the second question is, who's my neighbor? He must not have been around Jesus very much because if it were me, I don't think I'd be asking Jesus questions that I thought might put him in a bad light. It always ends up bad for the person who asks the question. It always comes back on you. And and Jesus is saying to him, these two questions are connected. Eternal life and understanding who your neighbor is are connected. And he says, you know, he says, Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he says, love the Lord your God, love your heart, so mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's right. But it's not enough. So the guy says, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the story. It's a little hard for us to grasp how radical this story is. Samaritans and Jews, sworn enemies. They hate each other. And particularly Jews toward the Samaritans. But they both, they, they, they dislike each other immensely. I was trying to put that in the context of our lives. And I, all I could think of is something like this. An American's walking down the road and, and he's attacked and beaten and left for dead. And a Catholic priest walks by and walks on the other side of the road. An evangelical pastor walks by and walks on the other side of the road. And a Muslim man walks by and he stops and he helps him. And he binds up his wounds and he takes him to the hospital and he pays for everything. That sort of makes us cringe, doesn't it? Who's our neighbor? I think this story not only talks to us about caring for people, but it talks to us about what it means to embrace and love people. There's compassion here. There's compassion for, there's a sense growing inside of us that this person's in need and we cannot not help them. It's a word that is used when Jesus looks on the crowd and he sees that they're helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd and he feels compassion for them and he goes to them and he heals the sick and he binds up the wounded and he teaches them the truth. And it's the word used in the parable about the master whose slave owes him an an exorbitant amount of money he could never repay in four lifetimes. And he has compassion on him and he forgives the debt. And it's the word used for the prodigal son's father that when he sees his son walking up the road, he has compassion on him. And he runs to him and he throws his arms around him. And he says, son, I'm so glad to have you home. Forget about everything else. 
It's that compassion. It's involvement. You can't love people without being involved. There has to be action. It's not enough to say, I love those people. I love that person. It doesn't mean anything until we see it. Loving with our words is hollow. Love is only love when it comes out of us in action, in sacrifice, in giving, in going beyond what is comfortable for us. Just like the Samaritan in the story. And we ask ourselves, who is my neighbor? When I think of neighbors, I think of the people that lived around us at our home at 1701 North Thomas Avenue in Evansville, Indiana, when I was growing up. And, and I think about the, the guys who lived next to me in the dorm that played their music you know, until one in the morning when I tried to sleep. Or the guy next door who we nicknamed Mooch because he would always get into your room and steal stuff out of the care packages that your family had sent you. Or I think about the, the woman that lived, her house was right on the parking lot of the church where we were, lived in Wisconsin. And, and when you talk about eccentric, my goodness, I mean, I went into her house a few times and she had stacks of newspapers that, for 50 years all around her house. And she, those little shopper things that you get in the, in the mailbox, she had years and years of those, many of them still in the plastic cellophane wrappers. And it was just amazing. And but we kind of built a relationship, and as her, as her mind began to, to have struggle, she, or she couldn't quite get, grasp things all the time. And her daughter told me that she said, she, my mom really likes you guys. But she said, she told me one day, she feels really sorry for you because obviously the church doesn't pay you enough money. Because every Sunday, you've got to fill the parking lot up with cars, and you have to sell them all off. And every Sunday, you're coming back and doing the same thing over and over again in order to supplement your income. By the way, you might as well hand your keys to the usher as you leave this morning. You won't be needing them. You know, we, we think about our neighbor and we think about those people. And of course, Jesus is telling us it's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be more than that. Maybe it's the people that we have a difficult time loving, caring for. People who are diametrically opposed to us, ideologically. People who who may treat us with unkindness. Those are our neighbors. And the hard thing about this is that Jesus continues to call the church to behavior that is not natural in ourselves. He is calling us to behavior that can only take place in the supernatural that we embrace and love not just the people that are easy to embrace and love, but particularly the people who are not. That's what sets us apart as the church. That we embrace and love people that other people don't. That we would naturally not. But how else will they ever realize that Jesus has something for them that nobody else has? How else will they know that there's more to life than how they're living because Jesus wants to do something transformational in them? 
How will they know that? And it's not that we love people in order to bring them to Jesus. We just love people. See, if we love people to bring them to Jesus, we'll always end up being manipulative. We use any means possible to get them to Jesus, even things that wouldn't please Jesus. Because our goal is getting them to Jesus. But when I read through the Gospels, I just see Jesus loving people. And out of that love, people respond. They're open. They, they want him. It's that spirit of love. And I think what we sometimes miss is that there is a direct correlation, a direct connection between our relationship with God and how we embrace and love other people. We have it into our minds that our relationship with God, that's essential. Our relationship with people, that's negotiable. But when you read through the scriptures, we couldn't be more wrong. A number of times in John's first epistle, he says, if you say you love God and you hate your brother or sister, you are a liar. You don't really love God. You cannot love God and hate other people. It is impossible. And one of the most significant ways in which you express your love for God is in loving other people. They're connected. And loving other people, embracing and loving people is not just about the people we love. It's about us. It's about our hearts. Because if we are closed off to people, I guarantee you, we will end up being closed off to God. It's just the way it is. But if we're really open to God, if we are truly loving God as much as we know, it will be expressed in loving other people. And particularly the people that are most difficult for us to love. But that's what the kingdom, that's what the church is about. On Friday at Lucille Gallup's funeral, her son David was, was sharing some stories of Lucille's life. And he talked about how when they, years ago when Devere and Lucille lived in Pennsylvania and he was working down there one day, it was in the late 60s, early 70s, some students from Boston University came to their door and they were soliciting support against the Vietnam War. And, and if you're around in those days or you've read about those days, you know how divided our country was during that time. And there, there was a lot of stuff going on and people, you know, there were, there were you know, riots on campuses and there were all kinds of things happening. And these were students who were so concerned about the war that they wanted to do whatever possible to try to raise awareness to stop it. And, and I got the impression from David that Devere and Lucille probably didn't agree with these students' perspective. But when Lucille heard what they were doing, it was a cold winter day, probably not like today. She invited them in and she made some hot chocolate and served them hot chocolate and cookies and sat down and visited with them. And then because Devere wasn't going to get home till later, she invited them back for supper so that they could eat a meal together and talk through this. And I thought to myself, wow. I mean, that, that, that's the kingdom in a nutshell of what it means to embrace and love people. 
to be welcoming, to serve them, to talk through things, to share the spirit of Christ with whomever. And we, have, we put this tree up here. It was in the prayer room during our prayer vigil as we were talking about praying as the family of God. And, and you know, as we went in to pray, everyone, when they finished, wrote their name on one of those leaves and stuck it into the tree. And we have this, this tree filled with leaves. And it's going to be up here the next few weeks just to remind us of the diversity and the unity and diversity of the church. As we think about the church as a tree, I'm wondering what kind of tree are we? Are we a a man-eating tree that people do everything in their power to keep their distance from us? Or are we an apple tree that has such luscious fruit on it, people can't stay away? The answer to that question has eternal significance for others and for us. I want us to take a moment and to think about think about the the person, the group of people that you find difficult to love. That you would find it difficult to to live out this call to embrace and love all people. And as that person or group of people comes to mind, ask God to change your heart. And to change us as the church in this place. Father, we hear your call on us and you know our struggle. Change us. Change us as individuals and change us as a church. Lord, we want our reputation to be the reputation of Jesus. who sacrificially embraces and loves all people. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. I want you to do something this week.
you think about that person or that group of people, I want you to pray that God will put something into your mind about something you can do to reach out to them. Something, some, kind, some act that will stretch you, push you to an act of love and kindness toward whomever God put into your mind as we thought a minute ago. And let's see what God does in us individually and corporately as his people.